Welcome to the Scientific American Podcast Science Talk, posted on April 27th, 2012. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... Feet were definitely a hot topic at this meeting. That's Scientific American editor Kate Wong. She recently attended the annual meeting of the American Association of Physical Anthropologists in Portland, Oregon. We spoke about feet and other foundational subjects at the Scientific American offices. Fascinating conference. Tell us about it. There were several really, really interesting stories that uh, came out of that meeting. Um, The first one was uh, a big study looking at the question of why chimpanzees kill other chimpanzees in the wild. And um, there was a presentation given by Michael Wilson of the University of Minnesota, along with uh, a whole bunch of co-authors who are like a who's who of chimpanzee researchers. Basically, the study um, looked at 17 communities of chimpanzees that have been studied by scientists for quite some time, and they looked at um, 86 killings um, in in those communities and tried to figure out what it is that triggers chimpanzees to um, kill one another. And what they found was, well, basically, there have been two theories for for why this happens. One was that it's just an evolved strategy for reducing competition for resources. And the second idea was that it might be uh, triggered by human disturbance. So things like deforestation, or in some cases, um, you know, situations where people have been feeding the chimpanzees, things like that. So when they looked at these, um, these 86 killings across these 17 communities in uh, Central Africa, East Africa, West Africa, um, what they found was that the killings occurred in most groups of chimpanzees, um, not just a couple of them, uh, where the killings had been kind of higher profile. Um, they also found that the killings were conducted mostly by groups of males, and the victims were mostly infants and adult males outside the social group, the, the killer's social group. So when they looked at all of this data, they determined that human disturbance was not actually a factor in the killings. Um, and, and in fact, the higher the number of males in the group, the higher the number of kills. Now, it wasn't the sex ratio, the ratio of males to females in a particular group that um, was the factor in the number of kills. It was just the number of males in the group. The absolute number. The absolute number. Chimpanzees are mostly peaceful animals. They're they're not spending a lot of time killing each other. But when they do kill, um, it, it, apparently it, it's the, this number of males in the group that is that is a, a factor. And you know the the reasons for this appear to be that that you know you're they're reducing um, the competition for mates, um, and they're you know chimpanzees are territorial, so the the males are defending their territories and and. You know, more work remains to be done on this. But when I spoke with Michael Wilson about um, about his team's findings, he suggested that it may be a situation in which it's the balance of power between neighboring communities of chimpanzees. So, so if you have one community that has a lot of males that can kind of gang up together, um, and and the neighboring community has fewer males, then then the community with the larger number of males is is in a better position to 
go on the attack and not suffer consequences for it. It's really interesting. And uh, people are exposed to chimpanzees in media. Are, they usually see baby chimps. They, they may forget what a full-sized adult male chimp looks like and has the power to do physically. Yeah, male chimpanzees are really strong, and you probably wouldn't win in a fight against one. Oh, you definitely wouldn't. I mean, <laughs> there might be some professional athletes who are gigantic who might stand a chance, I guess, but I don't think I would stand a chance. And neither would I. <laughs> Absolutely not. They're clearly a, you know, a different species. They have a whole different social structure, but there's there's so many things about them that just appear to be so similar to us. I mean, if it would it would seem just as a uh, an observation, a truism that if you want trouble in a in a human society, just stock it full of guys. <laughs> you know, I talked a little bit with Michael Wilson about whether there's sort of implications for understanding human behavior that come out of this study, and, and you know, his response was that. You know, we don't know if the uh, chimpanzee and human capacity for lethal aggression is something we inherited from a common ancestor. But, you know, the, the fact that it appears to be um, an issue of the, the balance of power um, in neighboring societies, communities, um, that's striking. Um, certainly, that would that would ring a bell with many humans. So there was this interesting thing that went on in the conference with with casts of fossils. And uh, th talk a little bit about the, the sort of sociology of anthropology and how, how people don't really share their fossils with each other a lot and how there was this sort of virtual fossil sharing. You know, paleoanthropology has a reputation for being a very secretive science. So uh, paleontologists go out into the field, they work under really hard conditions to recover these remains of our ancient ancestors, and they understandably want time um, after they unearth these fossils to put them back together, to study them, to make their pronouncements, um, their evaluations of, of, you know, what these creatures were like. And unfortunately, there has, there has been a sort of trend in the field to, among some researchers, to, to kind of keep them to themselves and, and not um, allow other researchers access to the material. And it's something that we've been critical of in, in Scientific American. And I was really interested to see this year that the plenary session at this conference, um, which was organized by John Hawks of the University of Wisconsin, um, was instead of just a long talk given by an individual, um, what Hawks did was to send word out to uh, researchers in the community that he was going to be devoting the session to inviting people to bring in casts of fossils that, that they had found or had access to and putting them all out on a whole bunch of tables and inviting the association members to come and just look at them. So for 
for a lot of people, particularly students, this was their first opportunity to see replicas of fossils that they've only had the chance to read about. Um, so there were things there like um, there was a, a copy of the famous Turkana boy skeleton, for example, from Kenya. It's an early example of Homo erectus, very complete, famous specimen. Um, and then there was even uh, th- this recently analyzed um, little pinky bone from the site of Denisova in Siberia. And this was the specimen that um, that recently geneticists were able to obtain an entire nuclear genome from this little, I mean, it's so tiny, it looks like we were laughing about it, like, like fingernail clippings. Um, and, and, and yet through this amazing technology, an entire ancient genome was, was recovered from it. And, and that was probably the, the least seen specimen um, in, in the whole group, and people were pretty excited to see it. It didn't look like much, but it was just incredible to see how much information could be gleaned from such a tiny little scrap. So you think there will be more uh, resource sharing in the future based on, based on this, or is this a one-shot? One you know, it'll be really interesting to see. It's maybe a little bit too soon to say, but it, you know, the fact that, um, for example, the the recently discovered Australopithecus sediba um, species from South Africa, um, that's a um, a discovery made by Lee Berger of the University of the Witwatersrand at, uh, in Johannesburg and his colleagues. That 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 team has made a point of um, making their project into um, an, an open access project. So they they have really committed to that and invited researchers from all over the world to come and see the specimens. Um, and, you know, if they're willing to share a discovery that major, then it's going to put the pressure on other researchers to also, you know, to, to share their materials well. And on governments, it's not just researchers. I mean, there are government policies that sometimes um, make it difficult for outside researchers to to look at fossils. So, you know, hopefully it'll be setting a, a great um, example for other researchers in other parts of the world, and everybody can look at all the fossils and do real science. Speaking of uh, fossils, so... Uh some possible insights into bipedalism at the conference. Yeah, the feet were definitely a hot topic at this um, meeting. Uh, there were a couple of specimens in particular that, that people were talking about. One was this recently discovered foot, um, a 3.4 million-year-old foot uh, from the site of Bertelli in Ethiopia. Um, and this is a really weird foot in that, you know, at around that same time, we have Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis. And that species basically walked upright like us and had a foot, you know, pretty much like ours. Um, now, this foot is from the same time period, but it has this big toe that sticks out to the side. It's very kind of ape-like in that regard. And it looks like a foot that um, is is adapted to climbing in the trees. Now, this is interesting because researchers thought that um, basically once hominids, early human ancestors, evolved the ability to walk upright, it was kind of like there was one way to do that. 
And with discoveries like the Bertelli foot with its divergent big toe, and then also Australopithecus sediba from South Africa, which I just mentioned, and that's a roughly 2 million-year-old species, that has a really weird foot too in a totally different way. Um, you know, one of the the most startling aspects of it is that it has a heel bone that looks um, just like an ancient ape's heel bone, and then an ankle bone that looks like a modern human's ankle bone. And the way that um, that's been interpreted, and Jeremy De Silva of Boston University gave a presentation on this foot at the meeting, he suggested that Australopithecus sediba, when it walked upright, was probably hyperpronating. So when it's walking, the foot is rolling inward, and it would have been a pretty awkward way of getting around, and yet that's what it appears to have done. So there are multiple flavors, if you will, of of walking around on two legs, and that was just something that, that in the past we never really thought happened. So it's just yet another sort of signal that there was more diversity among early hominids than many researchers ever would have expected to see. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can also read an excerpt from Charles Duhigg's new book, The Power of Habit, Why We Do What We Do in Life and Business. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Scientific American's Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Thanks for clicking on us.